Live from the rooftop of the Herman London Real Estate Group in beautiful downtown Maplewood, it's the St. Louis Realtor Podcast with your host, Adam Cruz. Welcome, welcome everybody to the St. Louis Realtor Podcast live from the rooftop of the Herman London Real Estate Group. I have my fabulous co-host, Shannon St. Pierre, here in the on the rooftop with me. Shannon, say hello to everybody. Hello, hello. And today we have a very special guest, and it's Scott Ogilvie. The two main sort of focuses of our of our conversation today is uh, one is a letter that he wrote on his website Ward W A R D twenty four the numbers two four STL dot org, and then the other is an article that he wrote in on nextstl dot com called the non profit paradox forty percent of real estate in St Louis is government owned or tax exempt. So if you want to have some context for our conversations. Those are two resources for you to check out. Next STL and Ward24STL.org. So what we wanted to start off with, Scott, is asking you just to kind of do a little bit of intro on yourself and a bio, if you sure. don't mind. Uh, well, I've been on the St. Louis Board of Aldermen for eight years. I was elected in 2011. I represent an area that is close to here, just across the border from Maplewood. Um, 24th Ward is Dogtown, Clifton Heights, Ellendale, and part of the Cheltenham neighborhood. So south of the park, um, along the western border of uh, city limits. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, uh, I'm a, a big cycling enthusiast uh, in my personal life. Uh, my wife and I live in Dogtown. We have a daughter and too many dogs. Um, and dogs. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I used to love them more than I do today, but they're fine. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> um, I think, you know, if I could summarize uh, sort of the high points of my eight years in office... Um, we did some good infrastructure work and some good development work within the 24th Ward. Um, we, we've done some important citywide legislation, I think, including uh, campaign finance limits. Passed that several years ago when there were no limits uh, at the state level. Um, and other things like uh, Prop R, which we passed in 2012, which was a board of aldermen reduction to, to shrink the size of the board from 28 to uh, 14 members. And then I've done a lot of work, um, a little bit legislatively, but more just sort of advocacy work on public transit um, within the region and, and drawing attention uh, to how the region sort of stagnated for a long time in expanding Metrolink or working towards a plan to expand Metrolink. And uh, last year we, we passed a tax increase that included a lot of money for a new Metrolink um, line in the city. Uh, so those are kind of the things I... I maybe most proud of uh, in the last eight years um, and uh, looking forward to just sort of talking about what I've learned in these eight years uh, in my remaining time in office. Beautiful. We wanted to kind of ask a little bit about like uh, sort of bit the basics, like what is an alderman? How did you choose to be an alderman? What's the process? You know, sure. what, what, becoming, the, one. becoming one and, and the grand scheme of like the city government, what's the, what's role. your role? Yeah, sure. I mean, we're the, we're the city council. Um, so we're the legislative body for the city. There's 28 aldermen. We each represent uh, a district. Um, and there's a primary election and a general election. Um, and so I won an election in 2011 and won again in 2015. Uh, the job, you know, we make the laws, which is what uh, legislative bodies do. We play a very limited role in the city's budget. Um, we, we do some policy work. Um, and we do a lot of... Probably the the biggest thing you do 
is what we call constituent services, which is just helping residents navigate um, things they need from city hall or problems, you know, everything, things from potholes to, you know, a street light is out, all that, all that kind of stuff. A lot of that comes to us. Um, and then we do play a role in development, especially with things like zoning variances and um, tax incentives. And a lot of times we end up being sort of the liaison between um, a neighborhood or a community and a developer who's, uh, you know, working within the ward. Um, so that's kind of, there is really no job description other than we're the legislative body, but those are the uh, kinds of things we tend to do. So what's the criteria to become an older person? You just got to win the election. <laughs> you have to think, live in the ward, you have right? To, yeah, okay. I think you, it's just some basic criteria. You have to be 25 years old. You have to have lived in the ward for at least a year. Um, and I think in the city for three years. Um, you have to have paid your taxes and, and you got to go convince voters to vote for you. And uh, if you do that, you can be an alderman. That's nice. So one of the props, the pop are though, that you um, mentioned as one of your key accomplishments, um, is that coming back up for votes? Or? Possibly. So that, that was a charter amendment. So we changed the city's charter, which is like the city's constitution. Um, and when we passed that in 2012, it said it, it will go into effect after the next census. And the next census, we'll have the results of the next census in 2021. Um, and Prop R again is the um, was the vote to reduce the number of aldermen from twenty eight to fourteen, correct? Mm -hmm. um, so there's been an effort uh, this year to revisit that, but um, that bill never passed. So it would have to charter amendments have to go on the ballot. There has to be a public referendum on them, and to change the charter, you need a vote of sixty percent. And so we got that sixty percent in twenty twelve. Um, so there's been an effort to get it back on the ballot to sort of undo it. Um, but that, that bill didn't pass. Uh, so as of right now, uh, that's not going back for another vote. Now, there's still some time between now and 2021 when it really takes effect. So it's not impossible that it would go back on the ballot and people would vote again. Um, and if it did, it would need another 60% to, to undo, to uh, undo it. Right, what voters said. So what's the general consensus among the alder? Alderman, because you're ask, you're cutting several positions technically. Yeah, well, it had uh, it had a majority of votes to get it on the ballot the first time. I think there's some uh, hesitation at this point. Um, you know, I, I campaigned for that uh, heavily at the time, and my you know the main points I was making are, are that we would be better served by aldermen who represented larger areas, who whose demographics, uh, racial and economic de demographics, looked more like the city as a whole. And I think we would be better served by people who had to um, had to present a vision to a bigger group of, of people. Um, we have a lot of wards right now. Uh, we represent a relatively small number of people compared to almost any other city in the country. And you know, we represent fewer people than we've ever represented before because the population has shrunk a lot. So my sense was we would just be better served um, with, the, with the smaller board of aldermen. And if we... We have at City Hall a large board of aldermen with very limited professional staff around us. And I thought we'd be better served with a smaller board of aldermen and more professional staff, um, things like you know financial, legal staff, um, you know legislative assistance, uh, things like that that make you run um, a professional organization. And I think oftentimes we lack that and, and residents suffer for it.
Okay. So you have publicly announced that you actually are not running again uh, in a letter on your website um, for another term coming up next year. The letter gained a lot of publicity. It did. It did. (laughs) So for our listeners, can you um, review what you stated in the letter as to your reasons? Yeah. Well, I I was um, kind of commingling two things. I mean, I wanted to let people know I wasn't running. Um, I certainly had some frustrations. But I also wanted to, you know, while I still have a, a platform to talk about some of these things, talk about um, how regional fragmentation, I think, is hurting the city and hurting the region. And, you know, my experience at City Hall, being in local government for eight years, really hammered that home over and over again, that there are just a, a myriad number of topics where um, the division between the city and county and, and the municipal division within the county leads to bad outcomes for residents. And I think, I think we get bogged down. There's a lot of problems at City Hall. That my point, I guess, was there are a lot of problems in St. Louis City that we do not actually have the capacity to fix because we don't have the tax base in the city. We don't have the resources of the entire region, of the city and county, to apply to the most acute problems. And so we have a lot of problems that have, have lingered and have not been corrected, and I think we're all suffering for that. So that's kind of my main uh, thesis after eight years in local government. Uh, and so what's been the reaction of your constituents of this letter and your fellow aldermen? Well, you're never more popular than when you say you're leaving. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think, I mean, honestly, the feedback has been tremendous. I mean, I've had... Just lots of people tell me they, they've felt the same way as some of the things I expressed in that column. Um, and, you know, support for reorganizing government in the city is is high among city residents. And I, I think there's more and more awareness in St. Louis County as well that um, we have a very unusual and not very effective government structure. And I think more people want to change that than they used to. I mean, I've, I've been to some events in the county recently and people... You know, they say, oh, you're an alderman in the city. I say, yeah. And they say, when are we going to merge the city and the county? Um, you know, the, people bring it up right away in a way that I did not experience um, in, in previous years. So I, I think that um, this idea is getting a lot more, more purchase out in the public. And what do you attribute that to? I think I attribute it to the fact that uh, I, I just think more... Well, we should back up. So people have known that this is a problem for 100 years. The fragmentation yeah. of the city and the county. Exactly. And just for clarification purposes, it is very unusual for the city and the county to be separated. We are in an independent city. Yes. Where our own, the city of St. Louis is its own city and county. Correct. And many cities across the United States were that way at one time. But as urban sprawl happened, the county and the cities combined eventually. And we're one of the last yeah, we're, we're holding out, and I'm not right. sure for what. Central cities either tend to be larger, so they're a bigger part of the, the region's population, or they're at least within the largest county within the region, which gives them um, you know, more influence which in, with, within you know, county policy. So, uh, yeah, so we're in a very unusual situation being a relatively small central city completely, you know, that basically shares nothing with St. Louis County. Um, it's very unusual, and it's not... Uh, it, it was not really done this way on purpose. It was sort of done by accident in 1876. Um, and as early as the early 1900s, people realized the 
that was a bad idea and started to try to change it. Uh, and there's been multiple votes to try to undo that problem. So since the be- beginning right. of 1900s, what happens we've been at those voting. votes? They, the public has just never uh, supported the idea. So those, all those votes failed. Um, but so it's not like us sitting here in 2018 are the first people to recognize this problem, but it is still a problem a hundred years later. And I think now we have a hundred years of, of history to, to look at the issues it has caused within the region. Um, and I, you know, I think if you live here, you can sort of forget how unusual the structure is and you can lose perspective on, um, how poorly this region has done in some ways over the last 50 years, like post-World War II. Um, you know, a statistic that I share a lot that I think shocks a lot of people is if you take the population of St. Louis City, St. Louis County, and St. Charles, in 1970 it was 1.66 million people, and today, in 2018, it's 1.67 million people. So we grew, the, the three big counties within the region grew less than 1% overall in the last 48 years, while the country grew by 48%, and the state grew by something like 25%. So, um, you know, if people are voting with their feet, uh, we're losing. And, you know, you can't, it's not just an issue of how regional government is structured, but it is an issue of how, uh, you know, the structure of regional government is leading to this underperformance um, in, for the region. And, you uh, I think we can continue down the same path indefinitely and, or we can make a change and try to right the ship. So that's, uh, that's what I've been trying to use my last few months to, to alert people to. And so there, there seem to be so many pros to combining the city and the county together that I don't know that I understand why we have it. Are, what are the cons? What are, what's the holdup? Yeah. What are people, the people that are voting against it, what are their, perspectives yeah i i think it mostly comes down to sort of an emotional and and psychological issue so when we you know the lines on the map are basically arbitrary lines but we assign a lot of value to them so when we you know when we say we're from some part of st louis county uh that can become very important to people and it it when we tell people you're on a different team and we all know there's this there's this very active, I would say, animosity between, between city and county and between residents of the city and county. Um, when you tell people they're on separate teams, they act like they're on separate teams. And so within the region, we, we look at each other like the people over there a few miles away are on some other team. And, you know, those aren't my, those aren't my people. And the reality is um, the region shares a common destiny and we just don't act like it does. So... Uh, so the, I think that's been the, I would say, emotional roadblock to getting us to reorganize government. That's the main factor is just, uh, we feel like, um, you know, we, we feel like we're giving up something if we can't say, uh, you know, we live in Kirkwood and that's different from St. Louis city anymore. Um, the, I think the pluses, I think there are huge pluses. The biggest plus being if you're all in the same County, or maybe if you're all just in one big city of 1.3 million people, you pool resources and you can apply the resources of the region to trying to fix the most acute problems within the region, which you know, I think we're all relatively well aware of, things like a devastating crime rate, things like huge educational disparities, things like um, 
you know, the, the abandonment of uh, large parts of city and county. So, uh, fixing the fragmentation problem is not going to solve all the problems on day one, but I think it, it, it resets the region in a way that lets us actually focus on solving those problems. Has anyone stepped up since you have announced that you're leaving? Has anyone stepped up and said, because one of the things you said in your letter is you wanted to let people know right away so that they could start planning and executing a, yep. a campaign if, and to give someone well enough time to sure. fill your shoes, so to speak. Yeah. So, uh, filing opens next Monday, the uh, November 26th. Okay. So it's coming up and certainly a number of people have uh, reached out to me and expressed an interest in running. Um, We'll see who who files uh, next week, but definitely I've had um, a, a handful of people who I think are qualified and uh, who who I think could do a good job who've reached out. We'll see who files, and you know we'll see what the mix is. And if if I feel uh, like one of them is head and shoulders above the rest, I'll, I'll probably endorse them. But um, I think the good news is that I, I think some some qualified level headed level headed people are uh, likely to file. So but, that's good news. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, well, they have a lot of learning curve in terms of understanding, like, who's who and who do I talk to for this and what power do I have? And, you know, anytime you start a new job, there's some learning curve. Um, if, you know, if, if you uh, make an effort, you'll figure it out um, before too long. Uh, the, the, the first year is, you know, probably more difficult because you are figuring things out and, you know, you don't have everybody's phone number on the first day that you need to have. Um, but anybody who I think applies themselves can can figure it out for sure. You mentioned in your letter that you had a lot of things that you kind of wanted to get done that you were able to get done. Mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, to me, the letter um, said that there was a lot of things that I guess were really hard to do. But did you find you started off with sort of your own uh, goals and then as time went on, like a thousand more things came up that you wanted to accomplish and those are the things that were harder than you thought they would be? Um, I, I don't think, I don't think new things came up that were harder. I, I think the, you know, the list I have of maybe 10 things that were very important to me, I think I actually checked most of those boxes. I, I will say, um, and you know, strangely enough, some of this had to do with having a, having a child, uh, <laughs> is that some of the things that, and sometimes these were just small things like interactions with residents where I thought something should get fixed. You know, I made a request, I made another request. It didn't get fixed. I got more frustrated with those things over time when things I thought should not be, that were sort of layups, uh, were, were not getting fixed in a timely manner. Um, I'm more frustrated with that than I used to be. And I'm, you know, if, having a kid, I think you have a little bit less like emotional reserve to deal with some of that stuff sometimes. <laughs> um, and, but I don't think it's different. I don't think the actual like performance of how departments are doing their job was very much different than it was eight years ago when I started. Um, and I, you know, I probably have more empathy, empathy than I did for them at the beginning because I see that, you know, with the limited tax base the city has, we, we can struggle uh, sometimes to just get basic stuff done. I think you can definitely look back and uh, you know pat yourself on the back for the things that you did accomplish. And from a real estate perspective, it seems like Dogtown and Clifton Heights and the other areas you mentioned. I knew you, I knew you covered Dogtown, but 
those areas seem to be doing great. You know, I see lots of new construction and things like that in Dogtown. Yeah, I, I think the ward is in a pretty good place. Um, and, you, you know, I think you want you want a, a healthy amount of real estate investment, which I think we're at, but we're not at a level where, like, everything is changing too fast. You mm-hmm. know, I, I think we're in a good place where there's enough demand that, you know, the vacant lot or the vacant building sees an investor, gets fixed up, moves new people in. Um, and so that's been, you know, exciting to see, um, you know, especially a couple of projects like, uh, the, the Gratiot school, which is, um, a, a very old, I think 1874 is when that building was constructed. So one of the oldest buildings in the neighborhood, um, was renovated a few years ago by, um, Garcia after St. Louis school district sold it. So that was very exciting. Is that the one at Hampton and Manchester? Hampton and Yes, exactly. Um, and I, I lived near there for uh, about a decade, so I always looked at that building and thought, you know, so much more could be done with this building. Um, we're getting a grocery store early next year and a new building um, at Clayton and Graham, kind of in the middle of Dogtown, uh, by a, de- a developer from Indianapolis who has now just uh, yesterday uh, made public a proposal to do a very uh, big uh, TOD project near the Devolver uh, Metrolink station. So, um, you know, that's exciting and getting that project through, um, which was not necessarily a slam dunk with the neighborhood at first, um, is, is gratifying. Um, and there's some other, you know, every, you know, every vacant lot or every, you know, home that's been vacant for a couple of years that sees an investor come in and fix it up. I mean, those all feel like small victories. From an alderman's perspective do you have a lot of kind of influence on the real estate or do you know about like real estate for sale or anything like that before other people do not you know sometimes i don't think aldermen are usually right in the middle of a lot of those deals but i they do have an opportunity um you know when things need some input from the city side and that might be a zoning variance it might be some type of tax incentive how you manage those things with, you know, a neighborhood association or community, which also has input into them, um, does, does matter. Um, you know, how you communicate what a project is or how you work, you know, go back and forth between, you know, a neighborhood and a developer to figure out, you know, Hey, maybe there's support here, but a few things are going to have to change about this project. There, that is a way where you can have an impact to make sure that things are done. Things can still get done, but be done in a responsible way. Um, and if you screw that up a lot, uh, it, it can definitely have a negative impact on investment because uh, projects may not happen if you have a lot of, you know, if you create a lot of animosity um, with with the public. So, so using a gentle touch yeah, can can help move things along sometimes. So as you pass the torch, what do you see as some of the positives? Uh, clarify a little bit. What positives in what way? Of, um, you know, what the next person will be taking on and their position and where they'll be starting from. Sure. Well, I think now is, is a good time to start. You know, the economy is good. Unemployment's low. Uh, there's, you know, 20 or the last 12 months, there was more permit activity, uh, you know, in the city of St. Louis than ever before. Um, so at least within the 24th ward, I don't think 
you're not taking on an area that has really acute problems. Um, there are always new things to work on, uh, and I'm sure the, ne- the, you know, the next person in this job will have you know, their own set of priorities and passions that they want to work on. Uh, but I think that they're probably starting from a pretty good place. Good. Good. So it, uh, we interviewed or we did a podcast on LRA at one point in the past. It seems like there's not a lot of LRA properties in your ward. Would you Correct. agree with that? Yeah. But you, do you have any perspective on the kind of the bigger picture for uh, solution for LRA properties? Yeah, some perspective. So, you know, I think the first thing you have to remember is LRA gets sort of the worst of the worst properties. Mm-hmm. They're, they're the last stop. So those are properties that nobody bought at a tax sale, right? So somebody, most LRA properties, the owner has already walked away. Um, they have not been paying taxes for three or four years. They went to a tax auction and nobody wanted the property even for the back taxes, which you know sometimes are only five or six thousand um, dollars. So these are the properties that have the least market demand. Um, so the the solution to that is not really like an LRA solution. It's a it's a demand solution, and demand means more people, right? It means more real estate demand, more demand for that property. Um, so the real solution to the, the inventory of LRA properties is, you know, more people wanting to live in the city. Um, and it's also filling up neighborhoods where there's demand now so that that demand probably spreads to adjacent neighborhoods. Um, and so it means just continuing to push, uh, development, um, in areas where there's demand and, and hopefully, hoping that it eventually spills over, you know, that it's also things like, delivering a level of service that creates demands and and that's um everything from public safety to school district to school availability uh to create demand in areas that you know demand is limited right now i have kind of a weird question i guess you know in business we always want to sell more and make more and have more you know we always want more realtors to work at our company and stuff like that right but so from a city's perspective is What's the drive? What makes the city want to have more people? Well, uh, the problems of growth are a lot easier to deal with than the problems of, of abandonment. Um, you know, we have, we have the, the, the population in St. Louis peaked at about 850,000 people. Um, we're never going to get back there, but we, we clearly have the infrastructure to support four or 500,000 people. And we need four or 500,000 people to, to pay for that infrastructure. Um, so I'm currently at what three hundred fifteen thousand about three fifteen yeah okay yeah so um I mean the reason we want more people is is just to have a sustainable community i think um you know big picture uh, in terms you know is the, the details i mean there's neighborhoods where we desperately want more people because um vacant buildings vacant properties are a huge liability i mean they really are bad for for current residents. Um, they make life more difficult. There, there's a public safety aspect. You know, abandonment. It's bad for people's uh, insurance rates. You know, it's bad for um, bad for their property values. There's all there's all these drags associated with living in a place where there's a high level of vacancy. So, um, new you know more people moving in, population increase would do wonders for uh, many, many current property owners in the city. I really wanted to have you here today is, I read this article last week or 
not sure when exactly it came out. I think last, last week. week, yeah. Yeah. And I was floored. Um, so this is the article that you wrote for Next STL on their website. And again, the article is The Nonprofit Paradox. 40% of real estate in St. Louis is government owned or taxed exempt. And I'm not even sure where to really start with this. Let's start by giving kind of an overview of Yeah, I mean, I feel like I just want to sit here and read the entire article because there isn't a sentence in here, though, that isn't vital to the story and important to know. But I think all of this is really important to to know. And I think what's really shocking is none of this has been looked at prior. So we we definitely want people to go to NextSTL and read the article, but I guess we're going to ask Scott to do sort of a cliff note. Sure. Version of it. Um, right. So I wanted to take a look. I've, I've heard a lot of speculation over the years about um, how much property is not uh, contributing to the tax rolls. Um, and we hadn't, at least not recently, there, there had not been a, a careful look at, at what that amounted to. Um, so I worked with um, our financial analysts at the, at the board and with the assessor's office to really compile a complete picture of all the properties that were not paying um, taxes. And so that's a couple different categories. Um, it's categories like parks, which, you know, there's value in parks, but we do have a big park system and it takes money to maintain that. Um, it's a category of government owned properties, which includes um, LRA properties, it includes federal properties, it includes city owned properties. Right. The city does own a, a fair amount of, of property. Um, and it includes. Uh, nonprofits, which nonprofit-owned parcels, which is a fast-growing component, um, and you add that all up, and in a city which is is uh, geographically restricted, we're only 62 square miles. That now all those categories now combined add up to 40 percent of the city is not on the tax rolls, um, and that's a pretty big chunk of the city, and it means that the other 60 percent are kind of carrying the tax burden for the whole city. Um, the nonprofit arena is, I think, of particular uh, importance or concern or interest because um, a, lot of that, a lot of those nonprofits are, are hot. The, the ones that own the most property, hospitals, universities, um, they, have, they have grown uh, as a percentage of the, the nation's economy. They're 10%. And in most cities, they're bigger. They're more than 10% of the, the local regional economy. Um, they may be as much as 15% of the employment, of the number of jobs in the city. And 15%? Yes. Yeah, so 15% okay. of the total jobs, or, or more, uh, we, have, we could still refine that number, are probably with uh, nonprofits in the city of St. Louis. And... Um, we think that the percentage of property they've owned just over the last 10 years when the city has gone from 5% to 10%. And a lot of that property is, is highly valuable property. So and it's of particular importance. And the, the paradox is really with the local school districts. So, so two of the big is Washington University BJC Health System and mm-hmm. then also St. Louis University SSM Health System. Yeah, I was exactly. curious about that. Is, is, is WashU connected to BJC somehow? Yeah, so um, I mean, WashU runs the the like med school. Uh, BJC is the hospital. They're kind of co-located in the central west. Island. Okay, and SLU and SSM are the same. Kings thing. Highway, yeah. I think the whole Kings Highway. Mm-hmm. Right. Medical so, system between Kings Highway 
and grand. Mm-hmm. So St. Louis, yeah, St. Louis University owns a lot of property. Tenant, um, or excuse me, I shouldn't have said tenant. That's the old owner. SSM um, does not own as much as BJC does, but um, but they're both big property owners. So the the paradox comes in when universities own a lot of uh, a lot of land. They're not paying property taxes on it. The local school district, their primary revenue source is is local property taxes. So they they see as much as ten percent of their budget is sort of foregone because of this nonprofit ownership. Um, you know, it's something that I haven't heard the school district talk about a lot. But if we continue to see the growth of these nonprofits and they occupy more and more real estate within the city, you know, I, I think at some point it's an issue that SLPS is is going to have to start talking about. St. Louis extent. Public Schools. St. Louis Public School. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think the solution is sort of which is what we go back to what we were talking about before is, is reorganizing the structure of government within the region. So you ha- you're a bigger pool of people are paying into like the same, uh, the same local government. So uh, joining the city and the County that would do wonders for a lot of these issues. Yes. Um, I, I will say though that if that never happens, um, the next thing you look at is trying to negotiate with the big nonprofits, uh, what are called pilots, payments in lieu of taxes, which is something some cities have done, so that they pay something. So they're paying some percentage of what they would owe if they were you know, assessed at a market rate. And Boston is kind of the, the highest profile example of a city who did that. Boston geographically is very small, even smaller than St. Louis, has a bunch of universities. Um, and they negotiated uh, higher pilot payments starting during the last recession in 2008, and most of the big nonprofits in Boston have been participating to some extent. So it has, it has helped their budget. The, so how did they get them on board? Do, it, were, they, yeah, so what Boston did is they, they went and they actually assessed all of the, they assessed the value of all the property the nonprofits own, which... We you know, have yet to do. We haven't done. You know, if you're, obviously you own uh, regular property, it's assessed every two years. Uh, but there's a cost associated with going and actually doing all those assessments. So Boston did that. They sort of brought in kind of behind the scenes all of these institutions, and they said, look, you know, if we were, if we were charging you a market rate for this, uh, you guys would be paying like $250 million a year. <laughs> so that's a lot of money that we're foregoing wow. in the city of Boston. Um, let's figure out what is a rate that you could pay uh, because there are costs associated with having these these institutions there, right? We provide police, we provide fire, we provide you know all the utility infrastructure, roads, all that stuff. We're glad they're here, but there is a cost associated with having them here, and that cost is paid, you know, just by the city of St. Louis, not by the region, or just by the city of Boston, not by part of Boston your property region. taxes go right. to exactly. Um, and so what? So Boston said, okay, what can you pay? And let's slowly over time ramp those payments up until they reach a certain level. Um, and they've been somewhat successful in doing that. If you look at uh, you know recent stories in, in Boston about this program, there are many people who will still say that those institutions are not paying enough, uh, but they're certainly paying something now, which I think um, goes a long way towards just acknowledging they have sort of a, a shared responsibility for the, the community that they exist in. So I can't remember if I read in the article, are our institutions paying anything? 
they're paying very little. So they, they, um, in terms of property tax, they are only paying on properties that are vacant because if they're oh, vacant, right. yeah, those properties are not really contributing to the mission of their organization. So yeah, I thought that that was really interesting. So they're paying some property tax on just the vacant or prop, um, property that's not used in connection with their exactly. mission, as yep. you say. And then employees of those institutions pay the city's earnings tax, um, but they are exempt from lots of other taxes. So we have a very favorable set of laws for non tax laws for nonprofits in, in Missouri. Um, and were those designed at a time that we were just trying to attract business or nonprofits or universities? Was this set up, you know, a hundred years ago? Yeah. The property tax exemption actually goes back to when like Missouri's original constitution. <laughs> um, so, and then, you know, that's, that's common. So I'm not necessarily saying it's a huge problem. Um, but these institutions were also much smaller components of the total economy in okay. the past. And now that they've grown, um, we have to acknowledge that there are costs associated with, with you know, hosting them within your city uh, that they may not be covering anymore. Um, and so that's kind of what I'm, what I'm getting at. Um, and in particular, you know, the one tax we could levy, which we've actually discussed, and there was actually a, a bill filed a couple of years ago that would have done this, um, is the payroll tax, which um, everybody but the nonprofits pays. And I, you know, I think that's, it's not out of the question that we might collect that at some point. It doesn't do anything for the school district, um, which is maybe the, the bigger concern. The city has a much more diversified revenue stream in terms of tax revenue than the school district does. The school district primarily just has local property taxes and then revenue from the state that the state pays into districts to kind of balance out some of the per pupil spending. Um, so they're getting dinged a lot more than the, the city itself is. Um, and I'll be interested to see if they ever kind of pick that up and say they need, they need some more help from the institutions. Okay. So the state law exempts the paying of sales and use tax, and there's very little chance of changing that because that would have to be done at the state level. Is that correct? Yeah. And what the particularly unusual thing there is that the nonprofits in Missouri, um, they don't even charge sales tax like on their own sales. So if you go to like a soccer game at SLU and you buy concessions, you're not paying sales tax on that. Um, or like their cafeteria. Exactly. And that's, okay. that's, that's very unusual nationally. Um, and that's a state law. That's that not just St. Law. Louis, yep. a region. That's, so the only tax that would be um, up to change is the payroll tax, but that doesn't help the St. Louis public schools. It, it doesn't. That would help the city's budget, but not the school district's budget. Does the city need a lot more tax money? Or are they running pretty efficiently? <laughs> that's a big discussion. Uh, I would say we have a very stagnant tax base and historically we've had very low reserves. Um, you know, I think you can find people who say that you could, you could be a lot more efficient, but if you look at, you know, cities just have to do a lot of things that cost a lot of money, uh, like police and fire protection. Um, and there are many categories of employee at, at city hall who really are not paid particularly well. Hmm. Um, and of course there's, you know, there's fewer, we probably need fewer people because of technology and because the population is smaller, but there are fewer employees of the city of St. Louis than really there's ever been before. Um, 
you know, I think cities always have to look at, at controlling costs. Um, but I would say we're, we're at the point now where it is difficult to recruit people for lots of positions because we just don't pay enough, especially with the you know, economy doing good. Um, we definitely lose good people all the time just to the private sector. So you can't really go and, you know, if we're already not competitive in terms of wages, um, you don't build a better city by cutting wages for your public employees further and not being able to hire people. So, um, so are we operating efficiently? Maybe not as efficiently as we could be, but most costs are personnel costs and we can't really shrink that any farther. So I think one of the staggering numbers I just that you wrote in this is a combined the city and the St. Louis public schools miss roughly $59 million annually across the four tax exemptions. Right. Um, and that's the property sales, use tax, and payroll. Um, that, that, that's, a, that's a large number. What is the city's total budget? The, if you exclude the airport, which probably shouldn't count because the airport's really a separate thing, yeah. the city's budget is about um, $750 million a year. Okay. And the school district's budget is about uh, $320 or $30 million a year, I think. So certainly the higher income school districts, or, you know, the more affluent school districts are spending, generally spending more per pupil than the, the lower income districts. How long did it take you to kind of put this article together? Uh, it took a little while just to, to, to figure out the data from the assessor, uh, but they were very helpful in, in providing that. And so, yeah, prior to this article, there had been no mapping done of actual plots that were owned by nonprofit and or government. Yeah, I, I found a, I did find later on, I found a map from uh, maybe 2009. Okay. Uh, so... There may somebody may have looked at this in the past, but I, I would sort of propose this is maybe a more important thing for us to track on an annual basis and to consider, like some other cities have done, actually doing assessments of all the the, the especially the nonprofit parcels that are not paying. So we have so we can track the percentage um, of revenue that we're that we're losing because you. I mean, I mean Boston had to do this, and you know I, I think they were surprised to find out that like 50% of their revenue they weren't collecting because of these nonprofits. And you do, I think, reach a breaking point. I don't think we're quite at the breaking point in St. Louis, but, um, but you want to be able to, to track this so uh, we know the extent of the problem. Well, I highly encourage everyone to go read this article. Uh, I think it's very important to just be aware of what's happening around you. Just a couple last questions. As you, um, you, you're not running for your seat again for Alderperson. What other races are coming up that we should be watching? Oh well, in the spring we're, there was an election for president of the board of aldermen. That's that's the big one in the spring. Um, there's three candidates right now: uh, Lewis Reed, who's current president; uh, Megan Megan Green, who's an alderman; and um, Jamila Nasheed, who's a state senator. So I think that'll be kind of the marquee race in the spring. Uh, Nasheed and Reed both have a lot of money. Um, you know, I've, I've worked with Reed. Um, I've worked with Megan Green, and I, I know uh, Nasheed somewhat through work. Um, I think they all 
they all have their own thing, and I think they present three uh, distinct choices to voters for sure. Um, Is there one that kind of stands <laughs> out to you? I th- in in terms of what and who would yeah we're getting into be the betterment of the city dangerous territory. So okay, and you yeah, don't have to answer <laughs> by the way. Then yeah, read. Uh, you know, Reed at City Hall, uh, he's a very positive figure, and he does a good job uh, running meetings of the Board of Aldermen. I think okay. the critique of him would be he hasn't particularly defined a vision for the things he wants to do uh, over the, the years he's been in that job. Um, Nasheed is, uh, I think, a, a fighter and a, a pretty good um, deal maker in politics. And so I, I think she may be out for some sort of bigger strategic things. Uh, and Green has a very loyal following among some people, but I think is not really going to have the presence to, to run an effective citywide campaign. Are any okay. of them in, in support of the merger? Uh, I think Nasheed is the most favorable to that. Yeah. And what can citizens do to help or create change? As, you know, I know... There's a lot of challenges with the city of St. Louis, but what can the average citizen do? The average citizen. Um, <laughs> I mean, if you're in St. Louis, uh, I, I love you, right? I mean, we, we, need, <laughs> we need people. I'm glad you're there. Um, I, I think for, you know, the, the demographic which we struggle with the most is, I think, younger families who, who make decisions to leave. I would encourage folks in the city to uh, start your kids in the district or in a school that you like and see how it goes. I don't think there's any reason to sort of jump ship before that. Um, you know, it may not be for everybody, but I think the stigma that unfortunately has been associated with SLPS uh, really shouldn't be there. It's kind of overblown. And I know lots of, I know lots of families who are perfectly happy with the schools. And so I'd say to everybody... I'm one of them. Yeah, I'd say to everybody... Give, give it a shot. Don't just assume that it's not going to work out. Um, I would say to you know, folks in the rest of the, of the region, uh, look at the big picture of where this region is going and how we can all look at ourselves as being on the same team and have sort of a, a shared destiny for this region. Um, you know, I, I think that interregional fighting is, is just not going to serve this region well in you know, a global economy. And um, and we can do better. So if we all if we all feel like we're rowing in the same direction or at least in the same boat, I think that would do uh, wonders for the health of the region a generation from now. That's amazing. I love that answer. So what makes you still smile when you about St. Louis? What really put, um, what puts a smile on your face? Well, I ha- I have great friends here. I have all kinds of fun here. Um, you know, there's you know I have a two year old and we never lack for something fun and inexpensive to do together uh and so and you know st louis is definitely a place where um you can make an impact without uh, you know being a billionaire so i i think all of those things uh are are hopeful um you know i like living here i just i just want us to uh to be a place that's capable of achieving our full potential that's awesome that's all I have. I know I, I wow. have a thousand questions. Well, so. thank you so much, Scott. I mean, not just for being a guest on our podcast, but also for, you know, obviously spending so much time on your efforts to help the city and your ward. And 
I can't imagine like somebody having to to dive into this and take on all the things that you've taken on. And I'm sure you could do a whole nother podcast about you know the things that you've dealt with and the situations that you've been in, and it'd be really interesting. But and the really, city county merge. Yeah, the, <laughs> we, we came up with like three or four more podcasts. But so, uh, but I, I just wanted to say thank you because I, I think that you know you've made a lot of impact, and um, I'm sure you had to put a lot of effort into it. Uh, it's been fun. I appreciate the invite today, guys. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Thank you very much. Take care. If anybody else has any questions, send them to podcasts at hermanlondon.com, and we look forward to hearing from you. So thanks for listening and take care.